You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. You probably have in your life, as I do in mine, neighbors and family members and friends, maybe children, maybe a spouse who doesn't know the Lord and has never trusted Christ for salvation yet, and that person's lost condition causes you to yearn for them to be free in Christ. You long to see them trust Christ. You pray for them, and their lostness perhaps grieves you. All of us would long to see other people set free in Christ who have never experienced salvation before because that is the natural inclination of the believer's heart to share his faith with Christ, uh, in Christ with others. A believer who doesn't have that longing, doesn't have that desire, there's something wrong with them. They've lost their passion or there's a sin issue or they're ashamed for some reason. But the natural longing is to see other people come to faith in Christ. And in the churches... I believe in the United States there is a apparent zeal for winning the lost. Um, maybe not the type of zeal that Paul demonstrated when he said, I would wish myself accursed from Christ for the sake of my brethren. Probably not that kind of zeal. But we have uh, been able to pack stadiums with people to hear the gospel, bring in nationally recognized speakers to proclaim the gospel, We have Christian radio stations, Christian television stations, entire Christian satellite networks, Christian television programs and Christian radio programs. We have MP3 downloads and CDs and songs and cassettes. We have uh, the Internet and web pages and books on evangelism, books for evangelism, books about evangelism, books to teach you how to evangelize. We've got the Passion of the Christ and all of the attendant literature that weighs down and sags down the shelves at the local Christian bookstore. Every author in the world wrote a book about the Passion of the Christ when that movie came out. We've got tracts. The Gideons produce millions of Bibles and distribute them all over the world every single year in an attempt to win the lost to Christ. We don't lack zeal. We don't lack understanding of our responsibility to do that. What I do think churches lack is the biblical understanding of how that is to be done. And the worldview and the mentality and the theology and the biblical practice of how evangelism takes place. And when we have the zeal, but we lack a biblical understanding of what evangelism is, it plunges us off into all of these bizarre attempts to win the lost to Christ. We've got Christian block parties, Christian beach parties, Christian slumber parties, evangelistic birthday parties, even the Super Bowl has been co-opted for a spiritual purpose and they have Super Bowl outreach parties where churches put on a big screen television set and put the Super Bowl on there and bring the lost in and evangelize them. And hey, I have no problem with Christians getting together and watching the Super Bowl, but is it really an evangelistic opportunity? It's a football game. Let's just enjoy a football game. But the mentality behind it yields itself to all of these bizarre representations of evangelistic outreach. I was talking with my friend Brian Atmore this last week, and I was telling him about how things are progressing with our new facility and how things are coming along there. And he said to me, 
you make sure that when you build a new facility that you put a couple of squash courts in there. So squash courts, what for? Oh, you never know. There might be one person in all of the state of Idaho who comes to Christ because of your squash courts. <laughs> and we laugh about that. And he was laughing about that and joking about it. But we joke about it because you and I know that that is the mentality that rules the day. It carries the day. There is nothing too bizarre to try in order to win the loss to Christ. So churches go with seeker-sensitive services and the music becomes a top 40 rendition of what's popular now and the preacher becomes a stand-up comic slash entertainer for people in order to win the lost. Is there a better way? I think there is. And friends, my contention is that you and I don't need to reinvent the wheel because there's a method that has been given to us 2,000 years ago and it has worked for almost 2,000 years. Only in our modern day do we see the need to abandon it wholesale and reinvent the wheel and come up with new methods and new means and new ways and new everything to win the lost. I'm going to let our teacher this morning be a man, in fact, the only man that Scripture calls an evangelist in all the New Testament. doesn't mean he was the only evangelist. just means he's the only one that's so designated in the New Testament. And his name is Philip, and his story is in Acts chapter 8. Philip is the central character of all of Acts chapter 8, and his ministry to the Samaritans gained him notoriety. He had been scattered with the persecution that started in Jerusalem. He went to Samaria, and there the crowds gave heed to what Philip was saying. And he baptized some of them. He had true converts. He had false converts like Simon the sorcerer. And then he had moved on and Philip really demonstrates his renown as an evangelist and his giftedness both before crowds in Samaria and one-on-one. Philip was noted as an evangelist in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 21, he's called Philip the Evangelist. That was his reputation. He was an evangelist. Um, In modern day wording, he would be to the New Testament church what Billy Graham is to the church today as far as notoriety goes, not as far as theology goes, but as far as notoriety goes, he would be the modern day Billy Graham. Everybody knew Philip. He had made a name for himself in Samaria, and it was because of him that the gospel eventually went south of Egypt into the continent of Africa. And the story is in Acts chapter 8. We're going to pick it up in verse 25. This is after the apostles' encounter with Simon. And Peter told Simon he needed to repent. And after that episode, Luke says in verse 25, So when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. I want you to notice three principles for evangelism in this passage as we go through The first one is in verses 25 and 26. And the principle is this. That it is God who moves the sower. It is God who moves the sower. The apostle stayed in Samaria for a period of time, solemnly testifying the Word of God to the Samaritan believers. These people had become believers now, and the apostles don't say, well, welcome to Christianity. We're going back to Jerusalem. They don't do that. They stay in Samaria for a period of time, and they begin to teach these new believers. Luke doesn't tell us how long they were there. Maybe a couple of days. Maybe a few weeks. Perhaps a couple of months. He doesn't say. He does say that after the apostles had taught the Samaritans the Word of God and discipled them adequately, that they would probably feel well enough to leave them alone, they headed back to Jerusalem. But Philip got different marching orders. An angel of the Lord appeared to Philip in verse 26 and spoke to him saying, Get up 
and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. Now, there are three very kind of interesting things about this command that Philip receives. The first one is this. The word that is translated toward the south, it literally means at midday or noonday. Or noon, not noonday. Noon or midday. You say, how can a word mean toward the south and midday? Well, where is the sun at midday? Toward the south. So they would use this expression which meant toward the south or toward the sun or at midday. If that is the what the Spirit said to Philip, then he is being told not only where to go, but when to go there. Get up and head toward the sun, to the south, at midday, to the road that leads to Gaza, which is south of Jerusalem. There were two roads. This is the second interesting thing about the command. There were two roads that went from Jerusalem to Gaza. One headed due west and then south down the coast of the Mediterranean Sea to the city of Gaza. The other one headed south and then due west to the city of Gaza. You could take either one of those two roads. One of them is a desert road. Luke says that's the one that Philip was instructed to take. Go to the road that leads to Gaza. That's the desert road, Luke says, at noonday. Not only the place, but likely the time Philip is given by this command of the angel. He's not told what he's going to find there. He's not told what it is that he's supposed to do there. All we're told about the instruction is that he is told to go out on a desert road, a deserted road, where nobody is likely to be traveling, and at a time when nobody is likely to be traveling, that is the heat of the day. Philip could have asked himself, what am I supposed to find in the desert at noon on a deserted road? Anybody who's going from Jerusalem to Gaza is likely going to head due west and then south because it was lush, it was green, there was water, there were more towns. This is a desert road that just winds south down through the desert, lonely and forsaken until it gets all the way over west to the city of Gaza at a time when nobody is likely to be traveling it. And the third very interesting thing about the command is look where Philip is asked to go from and to go to. Where's he at? In Samaria? Successful ministry? Crowds have been coming to Christ. There's all this talk. The disciples are being, uh, the apostles are discipling those, these young believers in Christ. The church is growing in Samaria. People are coming to faith. The type of growth that they saw in Jerusalem, they're now seeing in the cities of Samaria. And Philip is there. He's leading all of this up and training and discipling. And he preaches and people are coming forward. And man, that's exciting stuff. To see people in droves coming to Christ in a successful ministry. And then the Spirit says, I want you to go out into the desert at noon where nobody's likely to be at a time when nobody's likely to be traveling. And I want you to leave the successful ministry and go to the desert. If you're Philip, you'd probably say, and leave all of this? Lord, don't you see what's going on here? This is a successful ministry. There's fruit being born as a result of what I'm doing. But does Philip do that? Verse 27 says what? So he got up and he went. There's a whole sermon in that phrase. He got up and he went. Didn't argue with the Lord. Didn't rationalize with the Lord. Didn't ask for an explanation. He didn't reason that one way was better than the other way. He didn't ask for specific instructions. Philip just demonstrates something that is characteristic of him every time he's mentioned in Scripture. That is an unquestioning, ready and willing obedience. Whatever the Lord may ask, leave your successful ministry, go off into the desert. Philip is there. Doesn't have to argue, doesn't have to question. He just does what the Lord directs him to do. He's obedient. He is 
He is that vessel that Paul told Timothy to be, who is always ready for the use for the master, ready for good works. A vessel that's pure and honorable and ready to be used by the Lord. That's Philip. And the Lord says, get up and go. He's gone. Without explanation. Leave Samaria, go to a desert road. All right, I'll go. Noonday. I'm there. And Philip obeys. But I want you to notice something else. I want you to notice how God sovereignly moves Philip from one place to another. He used the command of an angel. Now, you and I should not expect that kind of direction today. I don't think that God directs us through the voice of an angel or through an inner prompting or some voice that we hear in our head or our upset stomach or any of that. I think that God speaks to us through His Word and He's given to us in His Word everything that you and I need to know or understand to follow His will. But I want you to see how God sovereignly moves Philip from one location to another location. It's by His hand of providence. It's God who moves the sower. It's God who moved Philip from Jerusalem down to Samaria. It's God who moves Philip from Samaria out into a desert road. It's God who brought the apostles down from Jerusalem to Samaria. And then they returned preaching the word through all of the villages of Samaria. It's God who moves the sower. It's God who directs our paths to bring our paths across the paths of other people who need to hear about the Lord Jesus. And it's God who sovereignly does that. Listen, friends. It's no accident that you are in your place of business surrounded by pagans. It's no accident that God has placed you in the family that He's placed you in surrounded by unbelieving relatives. And it's no accident that God has placed you in your sphere surrounded by the unbelievers that you're surrounded with. That is His providence. That is by His grace. And God in His providence and in His sovereignty directs His people and moves them right to where He wants them to be at the time he wants them to be there and gives them the opportunity to share. That's what he did to Philip. It's God who moves the sower. The second principle is this, that it is God who prepares the soil. Not only does God move the sower, he also prepares the soil for the sower. Look down at verse 27. So he got up and he went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. And then the Spirit said to Philip, Go up and join this chariot. Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, Well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And now the passage of Scripture which he was reading was this, He was led as a sheep to slaughter as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. It's not like God who moves the sower, but it's God who had prepared this Ethiopian eunuch. Philip gets up and he goes, and when he gets there at noonday, what does he find? An Ethiopian eunuch. Shazam! What a coincidence! No, it's not a coincidence. It's divine providence. It was the sovereignty of God. That was the orchestration of the Spirit of God. This encounter never would have happened had the Spirit of God not spoke to Philip and said, go to the desert at noon. It never would have happened. Philip never would have met that Ethiopian eunuch. And he sees the Ethiopian eunuch traveling there with all of his caravan. And likely when you've heard or read this story before, you picture the Ethiopian eunuch in his chariot all by himself with the Bible in front of him and he's reading from the prophet Isaiah as he's traveling down a desert road looking up every once in a while to see where he's going. That's not how it happened. He was traveling with an entire entourage. How do I know that? Because he was the treasurer for the Queen Candace, Queen of Ethiopia. 
treasurers in those days, the ministers of finance, the secretary of the treasurer, did not travel alone. He likely had all of his guards with him, all of his family with him, all of his uh, appointments and his associates and his other government officials with him, and he had made this trek down to Jerusalem. So he's likely traveling with an entire entourage of people, this whole caravan, and the Ethiopian eunuch is sitting up there in his chariot. Now, Ethiopia is not the Ethiopia that you and I are familiar with. It's actually the, the country called Cush in the Bible. It was just south of Egypt, and it was inhabited by Negro people. So Philip would have been able to recognize this man and where he was from by his skin color. He would have probably been able to recognize somewhat of his stature by the large amount of companions that he is traveling with. And he would have understood that this man is a, a higher up in the Ethiopian government. What's interesting to me is how God places his people. He's got his Ethiopian eunuch there, and God wants to take the gospel to Ethiopia, into Africa. So who does he use? Just some average Ethiopian? He's got his man, the Ethiopian eunuch there, a man in powerful, a powerful position with prominence, popularity, influence. Have you ever realized how often God does that with his people? Remember Joseph? Second in all of the land of Egypt under only Pharaoh himself. Remember Moses? Raised up in Pharaoh's household by Pharaoh's daughter. Moses called Pharaoh grandpa. I don't know if it was grandpa or not, but it was probably the Egyptian equivalent of grandpa. You remember David? Little shepherd boy in the court of the king of Israel, Saul. Daniel? Not just known as being in the lion's den. Daniel was influential person in the court of Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, and then Darius the Mede. Remember Esther? Queen to King Artaxerxes. And then she was the queen mother while Nehemiah was cupbearer to the king. See how God does that? When God wants to take the gospel to Ethiopia, he doesn't choose some ditch digger from Ethiopia. He's going to put his man there. He's the secretary of the treasury for the whole nation of Ethiopia. And he is the secretary for the treasurer of Candace, a dynastic title, kind of like you and I would refer to Pharaoh. And if Pharaoh was the Pharaoh or the Caesar, this is the Candace, the queen mother. Don't know what her name was, but Candace was not her name. Candace was her title. She was the Candace of Ethiopia. She was the queen mother. And they had, Ethiopians had a really kind of a weird religion. I think it was, I think it was originated by a woman. And when I describe this to you, you'll see why. Listen. They had this weird religion where the king of the country was actually viewed to be a descendant or a son, a child of the sun, S-U-N. He was a child of the sun. So they deified him and they worshipped him. And they viewed the king as being above as deity, the common tasks of running the country, so they gave that to the queen. The queen ran everything in Ethiopia while the king was being worshipped. And you can just imagine how that unfolded someday. Some queen walked in and said, you know what? As God, you're too important to be bothered by all of the runnings of the country. You just let me run things. And he said, sure. So they had this idol worship where they worshipped the king and the queen ran everything of the country. That's why it says it's her treasury. But that's the idolatry that the Ethiopian eunuch comes from. Surrounded by idolatry, but he's not an idolater. How do we know that? Because the text says he was on his way back from Jerusalem because he had gone up to Jerusalem to what? To worship. Now we know from history that there was a large Jewish population in the continent of Africa and in the nation of Ethiopia. So this eunuch is a Judaistic convert. He's a proselyte. There has been some point in his past where he has come to understand the nature of the God of the Jews. And he is a God-fearing man, although he doesn't know Christ. And he's a devout God-fearing man because he ends up, he ends up 
taking a pilgrimage up to the city of Jerusalem to worship. Now, what's going on in the city of Jerusalem at this time? Remember? A great persecution. Everybody's scattered. So you have thousands of believers in the city of Jerusalem. The apostles are there. Saul of Tarsus is going from house to house, locking up people, throwing them into prison. Persecution has broke out. And this Ethiopian eunuch just going to Jerusalem to worship, probably with questions in his heart as to who God is and what God has done, he comes into this persecution. Do you think all of that escaped his notice? Not for a moment. Not for a moment. It very well may be that the Ethiopian eunuch had met some believers while he was in Jerusalem, and that's why he's reading Isaiah 53 trying to figure it out. Because Jerusalem is flowing with believers. And the latest news is that they're hunted by a man named Saul of Tarsus. And the Ethiopian eunuch finds himself on his way back. He's taking a road that nobody else probably would have taken at a time of the day when people normally didn't travel. Maybe he didn't want to be bothered. Maybe he was in a hurry to be home. But he's sitting in his chariot and he's reading something. And Philip happens upon the chariot, and the Spirit says to Philip, go up to the chariot. And Philip goes up, and as he approaches, he hears the Ethiopian eunuch reading. And as a Jew, he recognizes what he's reading. He's reading Isaiah. And Philip recognizes the passage that he's reading. Isaiah 53. And he hears this, and he says to the Ethiopian eunuch, do you understand what you're reading? It just kind of breaks the ice. Now listen, the Ethiopian eunuch is, doesn't understand what he's reading. He has gone to Jerusalem and he has left unfulfilled. Still with questions in his heart. Still a vacuum in his soul. Still all of these questions regarding probably what he has heard. And he's sitting up in the, in the uh, chariot reading from Isaiah 53. And he doesn't understand a thing that he's reading. So he invites Philip to come up into the chariot. His hunger is so great that he doesn't seem concerned with who Philip is. Or what Philip is doing out at the desert at this time. He probably notices that Philip is a Jew. He's dressed like a Jew. He looks like a Jew. And probably recognizes from his accent that he's a Jew. And what better person to explain the Jewish Scriptures than a native-born natural Jew? So he invites Philip, come on up into the chariot. And Philip gets up there, and then Luke tells us the passage that he is reading is Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. And Luke gives us the indication of what passage it is because the Ethiopian eunuch was pouring over what you and I had poured over before communion. He was bruised for our transgressions. He was wounded for our iniquities. By his chastisements, we're healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned to our own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He's scratching his head. Philip says, do you understand this? I don't. So the eunuch says to Philip, who is he talking about? Himself or somebody else? Friends, notice the preparation of this man's heart. He's a proselyte to Judaism. He has gone to worship. While he is in Jerusalem, he has acquired a, a scroll of the prophet Isaiah. They didn't have Xerox machines in those days. Scrolls were expensive. And it would be near miraculous for a Gentile to even get his hands on a copy of the prophet Isaiah. But somehow he has acquired it, probably at great cost to himself. And he is traveling along the road, and Philip finds him reading not just any passage of the Old Testament, not the, the chronology of First Chronicles, not all of the genealogies, none of that. What is he reading? 
The one prophet in all of the New Testament that speaks of the substitutionary Old Testament, that speaks of the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ, and he is reading the one passage in that book that if you didn't have a New Testament and you wanted to lead somebody to Christ, you would pick that passage and shazam. Coincidence? Not a bit of it. It's God who moves the sower. It's God who had prepared the Ethiopian's heart for his encounter with Philip. His heart is ready to receive truth. The third thing I want you to know is how God uses the seed. It's God who uses the seed of the Word. He says to Philip, who's the prophet speaking of, himself or somebody else? A good question. Is Isaiah saying this of himself in the third person? Is he sort of describing his own burden and his own ministry? Or is this somebody else that the prophet is talking of? And and while we're asking questions, if it's somebody else that the prophet is talking of, is that somebody, somebody who lived before Isaiah, with Isaiah, after Isaiah, or is it somebody that we need to yet look forward to? Good questions. He doesn't understand any of that. But it's no problem for Philip. Because when he hears this, not only does he know as a Jew the Scriptures, but as a Christian he knows the fulfillment of the passage. And Luke says from beginning at that verse, that Scripture, he preached to him Jesus. Philip didn't say, look, just close the scroll. I have a song I want to sing you that I think will minister to you. Close the scroll. I'd like to tell you my personal testimony and share with you how I trusted the Lord. Forget the Word. Here's a chick track in a book. Take this home and read it. Come back if you have any questions. Did he say that? He didn't. What did he do? Beginning in that passage, he preached to him Jesus. He explained to to the eunuch that the one that Isaiah was speaking of was a human being who would come and fulfill all of the function of the sacrificial animals. He would be the one who, in his because he was righteous, could pay the penalty for sin. And so Philip pointed him to the one who was the fulfillment of all of that. He had gone to Jerusalem. He had gone into the temple. He had seen the sacrifices and the animals and the blood and the offerings. And he leaves with this passage that speaks of a man who would be a sacrifice of a man who would be an offering. And he's scratching his head, and Philip says there's one who's fulfilled all of that. And he points him to the Lord. He points him to Jesus, who was the sacrificial lamb. And it just so happens that there comes a point in the whole conversation when they pass some water. Now, I don't know what Philip's entire message contained. I don't know how long he rode with the Ethiopian eunuch. Was it several hours as they discussed these things? A few minutes? We don't know. We do know that Philip obviously had presented enough of the gospel for the Ethiopian eunuch to understand that when he believed he was to be obedient to the Lord in baptism, Philip's gospel likely was like Peter's, where Peter said, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, Acts 2.38. So he presented that amount to the eunuch, and they just happened to pass some water at the time. The eunuch says, look, water, what prohibits me from being baptized? Philip wants to get at least a verbal confession of his faith in public. He says, if you believe with all your heart, You may. And the Ethiopian verbally confesses, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And Philip baptizes him on that confession. They stop the chariot. Everything stops. The Ethiopian eunuch and Philip come down out of the chariot and there in front of the entire entourage, this man makes a verbal, public confession of his faith and his identification with Christ by being baptized in front of all of these idolaters. Right there in front of all of these people. And that's the New Testament pattern, by the way. It's belief followed by baptism. You believe in Christ for salvation. Baptism doesn't save you. 
Baptism can't save you. But it is the public demonstration of my faith in Christ. And it is the public display of all that is true of me spiritually and my identity with Christ. And the eunuch says, not only do I believe, but I want to obey the Lord in baptism. And so he expresses his newfound faith in newfound obedience to his newfound Lord. Their meeting kind of ends abruptly. Because it says, when they came up out of the water, the Spirit snatched Philip away, and the Ethiopian eunuch saw him no more. Now, I've read all kinds of fanciful things, and some of them not so fanciful about what that means. It basically boils down to two things. First, either it's a supernatural thing where Philip is literally just disappears from his sight and the Ethiopian eunuch sees him no more, a miraculous thing. Or it could just be that Luke is describing for us the leading of the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit of God that took Philip from there and he took him off and Philip found himself at Azotus preaching the Gospel. That Philip just left. I don't know if it was a supernatural rapture type snatching away and Philip appeared at Azotus. I don't know if it was that kind of a miraculous thing or if it was just Philip was led away by the Spirit of God. The emphasis in the text is on the moving of the Spirit. It's the Spirit who took Philip from Jerusalem to Samaria. It's the Spirit who took Philip from Samaria to the desert road. It's the Spirit that takes Philip from the desert road into Azotus and then on into Caesarea. And all the way, Philip is explaining the Gospel to all of these towns. And the Ethiopian eunuch never saw him again. And we don't read anything else about Ethiopia or the eunuch in the Scriptures or in church history until the 4th century. Then we read of churches that were established in that area, in that region. Irenaeus, the early church father, said that the Ethiopian eunuch became a missionary to the Ethiopians. Now, we don't know if he had some independent source outside of Scripture for that information, or if he just deduced that from what you and I have just read in Acts chapter 8. But we do know one thing. He went on his way rejoicing. You say, well, what do you do with a new convert if you don't follow up with them? Uh, Philip didn't give him any tracts. Philip didn't give him any discipleship. Philip didn't didn't follow up and just and and disciple him at all. The Lord obviously, in His sovereignty and by His grace, didn't see fit to give Philip that ministry. He went back to his idolatrous people, surrounded by these idolaters, surrounded by these Jews. Here was one man with power and influence who could tell all of these people about the Savior. And you leave him out there with the Word of God, the Spirit of God, and the power of God. Right? Do they need anything else? Everything else really is ancillary. He's got all of that. Those are the only tools that he really needs. Now what I want you to notice from the whole narrative, something that I haven't mentioned yet, and it's prominent in Acts chapter 8, is the centrality of the Word. They who were scattered went about preaching the Word. Acts chapter 8 verse 1. Philip was proclaiming Christ in Samaria. That's the secret to his success as an evangelist. Philip was successful in Samaria because he proclaimed the Word. Philip was successful with the Ethiopian because beginning in this Scripture, he preached to him Jesus. And Philip took the Word of God and used it in the hearts of the Samaritans and he used it with this Ethiopian because it's only the Word that has the power to save men's souls. It's the Word that is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's the Word that is that causes us to be born again to a living hope. It's the Word of God, Peter says, that was preached to you that you have been born again that is not a perishable seed. And Paul told Timothy, the Scriptures are able to make you wise unto salvation. It's the Word. Philip didn't see the need to use anything else but the Word of God. Now I ask you, in your evangelistic techniques, have you abandoned a Word? Have you grabbed on to any of these gimmicks, books, tracks, tapes, all the stuff that comes out? 
Or do you just take the Word of God and say, let me share something with you. Here's what God says about your lost condition and your need for Christ. Every Christian can be proficient enough in the Word to share Christ with lost people. Every Christian can say to a lost individual, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You're dead in your trespasses and sins, and there's nothing you can do to please God because you're a child of wrath. But the Scriptures say that there's no other name given among men whereby you must be saved other than Jesus Christ. And so believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation because you cannot work for it because salvation is by grace through faith and not of works lest any man should boast. So believe on Him today, repent, and place your faith in Christ. That's a very simple, straightforward presentation of the Gospel. And all I did was quote to you about six passages of Scripture. It's all the Word. That's the Gospel. How arrogant do we have to be to think that you and I can say something better than Scripture says it? How arrogant are we to think that we have something to say about Christ or about salvation or about man's sin that Scripture does not say better or with more power? But we glom on to all of these evangelistic techniques, little prayer breakfasts and men's outings and fishing ministries and hunting ministries and bingo nights and Harley Davidson Christian clubs. and Friends, why do we do that? You know why we do it? Because as a church, as believers, we have lost confidence in the power of God to save the sinner. We've lost confidence in the power of the Word to save men's souls. And we have lost confidence in the Gospel, our message, which is the power of God unto salvation. There's nothing people need to understand or to know that Scripture does not tell them. Philip's success was rooted in one thing. He was faithful to the Scriptures. And when he encountered the Samaritans, he preached Christ to them, and he preached the Word to them. And when he encountered the Ethiopian eunuch, he preached Christ to him, and he preached the Word to him from Isaiah 53. Philip didn't need any other tool. Nothing else he needed but that one thing. Now friends, I ask you, are you committed to the Scriptures as your method of evangelism? Because it's God who moves the sower. It is God who prepares the soil. And it is God who uses the seed of His Word to bring men to faith in Christ. And if we, God cannot use this Word to do that, He can't use anything I say. There's nothing I say that's equivalent to this. So since it's God's work in evangelism, does that mean that you and I don't have a role? Come on. Look at Philip. He's the vessel. He's the instrument. He's the tool. He's the lips. He's the mouthpiece. So Philip is there. He's available. He's obedient. But who is it that does the work? It's God who saves the sinner. Because salvation is of the Lord, the Scripture says. So Philip is there. He is the tool. He is obedient. He uses the Word, understanding that it's God who moves the sower. It's God who prepares the soil. And it's God who uses His Word. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 6, it's God who gives the increase. One man sows, another man waters, but the increase belongs to the Lord. That's His work. It's not our work. It's God's work through us. We're just the instruments. And you and I look at this and we say, wow, what a phenomenal conversion. Philip was a missionary, but the missionary of all missionaries has yet to place his faith in Christ. Acts chapter 9. God has his number, and it's up. And I can't wait, because I love this story. Acts chapter 9. We'll get to it next week. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word, which is powerful unto salvation. The gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. And I pray that you would renew into our hearts the conviction and the commitment to your word, which is truth. 
and to the proclamation of it, the spreading of it, and the preaching of it. Thank you that you have given to us the only tool we ever need to lead a lost person to faith in Christ. You've given us your word. You've given us your spirit. You've given us your promise. And we just pray that you would also give to us the grace to be obedient, to proclaim Christ where we are at, and to have that confidence in the word that is able to make men wise unto salvation. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.